Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us at the Central and Janesville podcast. Please remember to check us out on centraljanesville.com throughout the week. We're excited for wherever God's got you at right now, and we hope this message brings you a little closer. Thanks. Maybe you've heard the line before that we're using for our theme for this Easter Sunday. It's one of my favorite verses in all the literature that I think that I've ever read. Uh, the, the theme line is, everything sad is coming untrue. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan at all, you, you might recognize it. Uh, it comes from the last of the three books, Return of the King, uh, written by the amazing J.R.R. Tolkien. And I hate to give too much away uh, because my daughter Abby and I, we're literally reading through the Return of the King right now. And uh, I don't want to give away the story to her, but the phrase comes from when Frodo and Sam, the two main characters really in the book, they were, they were able to take the ring of power all the way through the enemy lands and they destroyed it in the fiery mountain from whence it came. Uh, sorry, I got to use Gandalf's phrasing when I talk about this book, okay? But Frodo and Sam, they, they thought that they were going to die on this journey. They thought that Gandalf had already died, uh, but they wind up getting saved and Sam wakes up to see his old friend Gandalf. Uh, and here's what he says. Gandalf, I, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed. I can never do Gandalf's voice as well as he does. But uh, besides being one of the greatest writers of all time, Tolkien was also a Christian. And that line, is everything sad going to come untrue? It's so indicative of what the resurrection of Jesus means to us as Christians. Easter is all about everything sad coming untrue. And that's, that sounds like a tall task, right? How, how can Easter fix everything? Anytime you use words like all or everything, there's always something in there that proves the point to be false. At least most of the time. Like if my wife were to say to me, Kellen, you never put your dishes in the dishwasher. Now, I, honestly speaking, that's true almost all the time, but almost is not always. So if she said, she says, I never put my dishes in the dishwasher, she She's at least sometimes a liar. See how I didn't always use the word always? She's not always a liar. That would be wrong and it would be very unfair of me to say. Or there are times that I look into my closet like all of us and I say, man, I have nothing to wear. And that's obviously untrue, right? Uh, I got tons to wear. Even if I didn't have anything to wear, my wife and me, man, we're this, like almost the exact same size. And I could probably find something from her side of the closet to wear for the day if I was ever in a really big bind. Now, that'd have to be a really big bind. Uh, the truth is, she can wear my jeans just fine usually, but uh, I've vowed never to wear skinny jeans. So that pretty much means that I'll, I'll never try on any of her jeans. I can't do it. It's just not going to happen. We use absolutes far too often. The truth is, me saying that I'll never wear skinny jeans might be an absolute truth that I'm going to re regret saying one day. Uh, but I still really, I never see it happening, okay? But is there anything untrue when talking about the absolute importance and power that we find in what Jesus did to our world on the day that he walked out of the tomb alive? Can what happened on Easter really make everything sad come untrue? Let's look a little bit at what happened on the greatest day in history, uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, it comes from Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Now, obviously, this is not the only account of the resurrection of Jesus. The account that we find in the book of John actually goes into more detail than this, and it kind of shows the personal effect that this unique moment in history had on some of Jesus' closest friends and followers. Uh, John 20 tells us specifically how Mary Magdalene, when these women find the, the tomb empty, she actually ran to Peter and John in despair and told them about what she had found or not found. Uh, John 20 says, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Now, here's an interesting little side note to keep in mind at this part of the story. All the historical writings indicate to us that Jesus was a real person who really died by crucifixion, whose body was placed in the tomb, and whose body was later found not to be in the tomb. Uh, one of the arguments has always been made that the disciples moved the body of Jesus so that they could make the case that Jesus came back to life. But John's writing here makes, makes it seem like it's a pretty far-stretched argument for that. Why would Peter and John take off running toward the grave in the way that the, this, this passage says they did if they had been a part of this conspiracy to move Jesus' body? These guys were genuinely concerned with the news that Mary Magdalene had relayed to them about Jesus' body being missing. Each of these individuals, all three of them being very close friends of Jesus, they were heavily impacted by Jesus. So much so that his death was an incredible blow to their spirits. Listen to what John writes further about Mary Magdalene in John 20. He says, Then the disciples went back to where they were staying, and now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking, uh, that he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around, turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Now what stands out to you about Mary Magdalene in particular in the Easter story that John tells us? I want you to get the mental picture going in your head for a minute. Here's this lady who desperately loved Jesus. The disciples have come and they've seen the empty tomb and they've gone back to their home and she's standing in this tomb. And what is she doing? She's bawling her eyes out. <laughs> she's weeping, not understanding what's going on. She's feeling all alone. Here's one thing that you can say for certain about Mary. Her sadness is real and her sadness is deep. Why was her sadness so real and so deep? It's because the death of Jesus was also very real. It hurt Mary and it hurt the disciples to the very core of their being. But while Jesus' death was the cause of their great sadness, his death was about to come untrue. 
Jesus literally reversed death itself. You see, death for Jesus became non-existent. It was no more. And as the death of Jesus became untrue, Mary finally realized something incredible about Jesus. She realized Jesus is our greater hope. Now, you've experienced that, that feeling of having no hope before, right? It's not a fun feeling. And in the moment of your hopelessness, it seems like nothing will ever be able to reverse that feeling. Maybe you broke up with somebody and you thought that you're never going to catch your breath again. Or maybe you, got, maybe you got the wind knocked out of you and you literally thought you were never going to breathe again. I, I, it's like one of the worst feelings in the world to me. As a preteen kid, uh, I was going through changes and I was asked to sing at a wedding. And it became one of the two most embarrassing moments of, of my life. I'm not going to say what the other one was right now because it's just really embarrassing. But my voice changed on the very week I was supposed to sing in this wedding. Up until then, I had a high soprano type of singing voice and it cracked the whole day leading up to the wedding. I couldn't hit the notes. Uh, but my mom, who was playing the piano, she just thought it was just nerves and made me keep on doing it. I, I knew that my body was just, it, it had gone through a drastic change and I didn't know how to explain that to her. It's probably the worst sounding song that's ever been sung in a wedding, period. Uh, I thought I, I literally, I was like, oh, I just I think I want to just die right in the moment. That's, as a young kid, you don't think that a moment like that can ever be redeemed or reversed. Uh, you feel like you're going to be stuck there forever. But in truth, even as adults, it's tough to believe that some of our hopeless moments can be reversed. But even, if even the death of Jesus can be reversed, we know that in Jesus, all things that matter can be reversed to his good intentions. Sadness and doubt and fear are all subject to Jesus if even death is under his authority. Death literally had no hold on Jesus. And that being said, with Jesus as our greater hope, we know this. In the resurrection, everything hopeless becomes hopeful again. The end of a loved one's life, it can seem like a really hopeless time for, for just about anybody. But there is a hope that we get to have. Even in those some otherwise seemingly dark moments of death, we get to have a hope that others don't get to have. Listen to what First, Thess First Thessalonians, that's a hard word to say, okay? First Thessalonians says this, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You want to talk about reversing everything that is hopeless in this life? Uh, John actually writes more about it in the book of Revelation. Uh, I want you to listen to all the things that Jesus promises to reverse. This is Revelation chapter 21. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Promise number one. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning, no crying, pain, for the older order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And that's almost hard for us to believe. That to think that there'd be no more pain, no more crying, death. It might seem impossible to you to think of a future where that is even in the realm of possibility. The question is, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you believe that Jesus could have victory over death, why couldn't he also have victory over any other kind of pain? Why couldn't there be a day coming where your hopelessness is reversed 
and you're left with nothing but joy. But I want to make it clear that the power of Easter shouldn't just give us hope for tomorrow. It's not just about a future that you're promised that one day Jesus is going to reverse things like he did when he walked out of the tomb. Easter represents a greater hope for today. And here's one of those ways. Jesus is our greater potential. Uh, Ephesians 1 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you ever feel weak sometimes? It's a stinky feeling, feeling weak. I got two nephews who in the last few years, they've gotten really strong. I, I don't really like it all the time. Owen, my, my younger of those two nephews, man, he used to, we used to play each other in this game where we'd hit each other in the arm as hard as we could just to see who would fold first. Um, his parents were there, they, they approved of it and all that stuff. But it was, it was a fun game that we would play. And it was fun for me until about a year and a half ago. Uh, all of a sudden, man, his punches started to really hurt bad. Um, surely I didn't want to act like it when I'd get hit, but, but it hurt. And the last time that we did this little arm punching game, I texted him later that night. I was in pain, and I just texted him, I'm like, you win. <laughs> it's, it's over. Like, my weakness was now apparent. Uh, on a side note, I've now recently gone and bought, bought some uh, like 15 and 20 pound dumbbells just because I'm sick of having too many biceps com compared to those guys. Uh, but feeling weak in our character, feeling weakness in carrying out our everyday lives like we think we're supposed to, it can be an awful feeling. But Paul is saying here in Ephesians that you and I have been given power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead has been given to those who believe. And we don't, we don't have to go to the weight room. We don't have to work for it. Honestly, all we need is to believe. With Jesus as our greater potential, uh, here's something else that I think that we know. In the resurrection, everything weak is given potential again. The power of the resurrection gives you potential when you're feeling weak as a parent. When you're at your wit's end and you, you don't know the best way to try and lead your child, Jesus can take your weakness and make you strong again. There is more potential in your weakness than anywhere else in the world. Actually, Jesus says, it talks about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 12, 19, that his power is made perfect in our weakness. How cool is that? Like, you just have to admit your weakness, believe in the power that you see in the resurrection of Jesus, and that same power is made available to you. Life coming from death, potential coming from weakness. Who could use a little bit of that kind of potential today? It's literally right there for the asking. I love what Timothy Keller says about it. He says, resurrection is not just consolation. It is a restoration. It is the reversal of the seeming irreversibility of loss. You might think that you're at a place in life where you've lost every bit of potential that you once had. You've messed up your marriage beyond repair. You've messed up your influence over your kids beyond the hope for reconciliation. Your body is old and beat up and it leaves you feeling like, Everything from here on out is just going to be a downward spiral. Stop believing that lie. The resurrection represents the power of restoration that is available to you, and it can reverse all that you think you've lost right now. If you believe, Jesus says that there's potential. 
Now, Easter, I think, represents other hopes for today. Here's another one. Jesus is our greater reliance. Now, what in the world do I mean? That one, you maybe don't get that one right now, okay? I think one of the most disheartening things in the world must be when you have nobody else to rely on but yourself. Now, my wife would probably tell you that the thing that brings me the most stress out in life is more than anything is when I try doing a home repair of some kind on my own. Uh, I've changed a sump pump a couple times on my own. I yelled at those disgusting holes of mucky water in my basement both times the whole time I was changing those things. I find myself daydreaming of my knight in shining armor walking in the room and taking over when I'm doing a home repair. And sometimes he does walk in and he looks an awful lot like my brother-in-law. Uh, there's nothing worse than feeling like I have only myself to rely on and, and the thing I have to do, I feel completely incapable of doing it. Do you think that you're all alone having to rely on yourself and having no one to hold you up? Stress like that, it, it wasn't foreign to the disciples or the apostles in the New Testament. I want you to hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. He writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the, the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Now here's Paul talking about being under great pressure. Now honestly, he probably felt greater stress and more pressure than probably any of us have ever known or have felt. Uh, dude was always getting arrested for preaching. He was being beaten constantly. Dude had it rough. And he says that he learned to rely on God and God delivered him. And the deliverance that God brings, it's not just a one-time thing. We have relief eternally that comes our way once again through the power of the resurrection. We can eternally rely on Jesus when there's no one else to rely on. With Jesus as our greater reliance, when we rely on him more than anything or anyone else, here's something else that we get to know. In the resurrection, everything stressful becomes relieved again. Now, now what does that not mean? It doesn't mean that you won't experience stress ever. What it does mean is that your stress when you put it in context of the eternal life that Jesus has given you, ultimately that stress will have both a purpose and a finality to it. It will end at some point. Here's something Timothy Keller says about this. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be for greater, be greater for having once been broken and lost. Easter, the resurrection, promises us life born out of death. Your difficulties, when you continually choose to rely on Jesus and not yourself, your difficulties will ultimately lead to something that brings an eternal glory. Paul puts it perfectly in 2 Corinthians. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. If you choose to rely on yourself, then yes, a weight will be on you that you cannot bear. But Jesus took the ultimate weight of your life. He took your sin. He took that weight on himself so that you could be free. You're not meant to live with so much stress piled on you. He wants to take it from you. And if he's capable of taking the stress of your sin and its consequences on your own shoulders, on his own shoulders, 
What stress do you really think that there is that he's not willing to share, share the load with you for? With Jesus, everything sad will come untrue. Everything hopeless will come untrue. Everything weak will come untrue. Everything stressful will come untrue. The tough thing is this. We are still only living in the promise. It's like we're there, but we're not quite there all the way yet. It, it kind of reminds me of something my friend was talking about recently about when somebody wins a gold medal. Um, now, the Summer Olympics are coming up. At, at least they're supposed to come up this summer. And, uh, but I think we, we all have that sport that we haven't cared about for four years, and then the Olympics comes along, and now it's as if we're that sport's biggest fan. In the summer games, my sport of passion seems to be swimming. Uh, Michael Phelps kind of changed the ball game for me on that sport. And, uh, talk about exciting. In the winter games, though, short track speed skating, that's where it's at. And curling. I still have zero clues about any single rule of curling. I don't know how it is scored. I just know it's fascinating and I love it, uh, at least every four years. Now, what's the best part of an athlete winning an Olympic sport? Maybe you think it's when they hit that wall or the finish line and they realize that they've won. And that's gotta be an amazing moment, but I think the climactic moment a lot of times for the gold medal winning athlete is that moment when they're on the riser and their national anthem is being played while their, their country's flag is being raised to the ceiling. That moment is unlike any other moment. Usually there's one or two of those ceremonies during the Olympics where I'm getting all misty-eyed because I get all sensitive about sports and stuff. Uh, but what about that in-between time when the athlete wins the race and the moment that they get their medal? Now, how long does it take usually before that ceremony? Maybe 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour? Uh, sometimes I think they actually even wait until the following day. And it's like, yes, we know that they won the gold medal, but it's, it's not like we really fully acknowledge it or celebrate it until the moment of that medal ceremony. In some ways, it's, it's almost like the time that we're living in right now. On Easter Sunday morning, Jesus walked out of the grave that he'd been placed in after his crucifixion. And that was the moment where he won the race. But it's almost as if we're in that in-between stage right now where we're waiting for the gold medal ceremony. Everything has not yet been made whole and well. Everything sad has yet to be made untrue. We're still dealing with the ramifications that sin in this world has put on us. But we know that Jesus already won. The fact that the ceremony is coming is not a question. One day, truly, everything sad will come untrue. And everything sad will come untrue for us only because on the cross, everything sad became true for Jesus. Everything happy became untrue for Jesus. He took it on himself so that he could reverse all of it for us. In the resurrection, we see his power to make that reversal a reality. When Mary Magdalene finally realized that Jesus' body hadn't simply been moved, that in fact he had risen from the dead, in that moment, joy overtook her. She went from weeping and utter loneliness to running to the disciples and yelling to them that she had seen the Lord. When she finally learned the truth about Jesus, all her sadness became untrue. Today, I don't know what your struggle might be, but I know this, it's a temporary struggle. In Jesus, you have a promise, the promise that everything sad will become untrue. We're not meant to live in a constant state of despair. We're not meant to feel defeated. We're, when, when you know the truth about Jesus, your whole outlook 
on sadness and loss, it can look different. When you realize the power over death that Jesus holds, you can be confident that he holds the same power over each and every sadness that you're going to face in the world. Do you need to be infused today with the hope and joy of the resurrection? I think it's something that all of us need to be reminded about over and over again. Not, not just a, that the resurrection is good. We need to be reminded that the resurrection brings power for our lives. Are you looking to the power of Jesus' resurrection on a daily basis? Is your life filled with a power that ultimately wins out every time that you, you come up against something difficult? Easter is the place where you find that power. Jesus walking out of the grave is your source of power that changes everything for the better. Are you letting it change you and empower you every single day? Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we ask for your power today. God, I thank you for the power that, that we find in the resurrection. That Jesus did not stay in that grave, but he came walking out of that grave. He is alive. God, I thank you that, that truly in you, everything sad will become un, untrue. God, that the, the, the sorrows, the depression, the anger, the resentment that we feel, in you, all of that goes away. God, I pray that you would help us to, to grab a hold of the power of the resurrection today and what it means for our lives, the life that it will bring to us. That as we, as we hold on to, to that power, that we will start to see anger subside, depression subside, hurt subside. God, I pray for your power to overcome us this week. God, I pray that as we celebrate your resurrection, that we will find resurrection in our own hearts and in our own souls and our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Central and Janesville podcast. Remember to check us out at centraljanesville.com. Have a great week.